0: Thank you. to a new episode of the soul Kitchen. I'm talking to Ilya Gorgoris, also known as the Happiness Doctor. He's an international keynote speaker and author on happiness and uh, well-being. Also the president of the Happiness Center and ex- executive producer of a new TV reality show. We got connected through mutual friend Asha Lalai, who is very active in the scene of, um, of happiness. And I'm very interested to learn more about happiness, like what it means and, and how you can be happy. So uh, welcome uh, today. How are you? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I'm, uh, I'm excited for our talk. I'm excited to be coming back to Europe in a couple of weeks. So I'm uh, manifesting a different kind of life. You know, half, half the time in America, half the time in Europe. So uh, it's been a lifelong dream of mine and it's coming to fruition this year. So I'm very excited. I call it the seasonality
0: life where you spent seasons yes. in different areas of the world because where were you born actually? Well, I was born in Athens, Greece. Ah, so you're you originally you're you're Greece. Yeah. So what yeah. brought you to, what brought you to the United States?
1: Well, I did not have much of a choice. I was 10. <laughs> my family moved here. <laughs> I was the youngest one. I had to come. Yeah, um, my, my parents moved uh, to a, a beautiful place actually called Santa Monica which is a suburb of uh, Los Angeles, just right on the water, right in the ocean. This beautiful place. It was a great place to grow up, actually. And what brought your
0: parents to the United States?
1: That is a very complicated answer. It had had like six, seven different factors. Uh, uh, One of them actually was my mom got cancer when she was really young, uh, which is one of the reasons why we left Greece. She was only 39 years old. And uh, my parents had lived in Los Angeles before, so they knew the language, they knew the area. And... uh, You know, the treatment center back in those days uh, for cancer in uh, UCLA Medical Center, I believe us moving to America actually kept her alive for another dozen years or so. I think had we stayed uh, home, we probably would have lost a lot sooner. And, you know, that was important for me because I got to be with her until I was 22. And even though it was very painful to lose my mom, even at the age of 22, I was grateful that I had her, you know, growing up through my teenage years and so on. So that was probably the, the biggest reason. I think my parents also wanted us to get a great education. You know, both my brother and I ended up going to UCLA ourselves. We both got PhDs. Um, you know, education was really important for my parents. We were the, you know, so that was one of them. Also, my brother and I were actually really good swimmers. We were, I was on the national team actually in Greece, uh, multiple uh, gold medalists over the years. In Southern California at the time was the best place to train, like in uh, swimming. So, wow. So there were it, multiple factors, you know. So it was a mix of
0: reasons. So the health of your mom, education, and um if you look back at your uh, your life, like what what has it meant to you to make such a geographical move when you were ten?
1: Yeah, and I think you know it was really hard because we were not like the typical people that come to America looking for a better life. Kind of we had a great life in Greece. Like we had uh know very middle-class family but we had everything we had homes on the beach we had you know anyway we had a really good life and so it was a big shift and uh my dad because we were like so sad when we first moved just we were counting the days when can we go back to Greece again you know just counting the days um he said something very profound he said listen Greece and America and I think that applies actually to any country uh, in, in the world, wherever you're from. Take the best of both worlds. And he, I remember being a little kid, he explained that to us, meaning he says there are things in America, advantages and so on, that Greece is not going to have, not even in a hundred years, like opportunities, right? The American dream and all that stuff. On the flip side, he said, there are things in Greece that America is not going to have in a thousand years. Mm. No, the Mediterranean lifestyle and just the whole joyfulness and, you know, how we, I mean, um, I just in, was part of an inauguration this summer, like a month ago, in Greece, about the Mediterranean Lifestyle, lifestyle and Medicine Institute. So we launched that like a month ago. And I'm like, and I hear my dad's words coming kind of like full circle, you know, after all these years. So his whole point is, you know, no country is perfect. It all has its challenges. Take the best of both worlds. And we were kind of raised that way. And of course, when my wife and I got married and, and had our own children and raised them, even though we raised them in America, we always would take them back to Europe. My wife is half German. She speaks German. So, you know, I'm, I'm Greek. So, and we really raised world citizens. So the idea is that we're not confined by our place of birth or our nationality. Really, I believe we're all connected in this world. We're all brothers and sisters, in essence, in the spiritual domain. So therefore, we're world citizens. Right yeah and part of one race the human race and that's how we raise our kids so that's how that's how it is
0: i think it's beautiful that you combine the opportunity economic opportunity american dream of the states and then the mediterranean lifestyle in greece that's a, a beautiful life and i feel a lot of people dream of such a life but not many people execute on it what what are practical barriers actually in in
1: living into <laughs> geographical areas or three, you know, it'd be more than two. You know, um, I think in life sometimes when people have the money to do or to live this kind of lifestyle, they don't have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. Or when people have the time, they just don't have the money to do it, right? Or their health. So I mean, let's add that. So I think to have the money, the time, and your health at some po- point in your life, and uh, so that's why I, was, I told my wife, I said, "The time is now." we raised our kids. We have great kids. You know, now we're getting our grandkids. The time is now for us to live this kind of life because when my mom and dad were at that phase, my mom died from cancer. So they never got to live this dream. That was their, always their dream. Yeah. You know, in her parents' case, you know, they ended up, the relationship didn't work out for, with my in-laws, you know, and they, you know, they weren't together anymore. So I'm like, let's fulfill this dream. Like both sets of our parents, this is what they really wanted. None of them achieved it. So I, I, I want to achieve it. Like. And I'm doing it. Like, I mean, this year will be four months in Europe, eight months in America. And next year, it's going to be six and six, I mean, or five and seven, whatever. We're getting close.
0: We're doing it. That's amazing. So I like that triangle between money, time, and health that you don't always have them
1: all. So you need to balance and and you need to do it now. So no, you rarely have them all. I mean, that's the thing. You rarely, you may have one or two. You rarely have all three. So, if you happen to have all three at a certain phase in your life, it's time to execute and not keep daydreaming. So, yeah. I'm manifesting this life because I've thought about it in great detail for many, many years. Like, this didn't have, I didn't wake up one day and say, Hey, let's do this. I've, I've prepared, you know, which is part of how you navigate life's challenges, right? You prepare and then you take action. Yeah. So, that's what we're doing.
0: I completely agree because I'm living nomadic right now, but it took a lot of preparation. Uh, to have some resources to to liberate myself from certain commitments in Amsterdam they don't come from one day at the other so I think that's a really inspiring example and um, you're working in the field of of happiness and most people want to be happy but I know a limited amount of people that actually work in this field so can you explain why you decided to enter this space for yeah for your work slash
1: life I I will, and I'll I'll, I'll share a couple of things with that. First of all, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle 2,500 years ago said that happiness is the whole purpose and meaning of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Now, think about what a profound statement that is, right? And, you know, I get to speak around the world. I travel in, in audiences all over the world and speak about happiness. You know, when I start my talks, before I start giving my talk, I ask the audience the following question. I say, it doesn't matter what country it's in. If you were to ask any parent, regardless of their ethnicity, their nationality, their religious affiliation or not, uh, their socioeconomic status, you know, their gender, whatever, what would you like for your children? What's the answer to that question? I just want them to be, and I take the mic and I stick it in front of it, and they're like, happy, you know, <laughs> like, they all answer that, and they answer that every single time. I just want them to be happy. So th- that is a, just a universal need. Now, the question, of course, is, and, I, and I've had people asking that, well, how did you become a happiness expert? That's kind of a weird thing. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and if I tell you that it really started the day I was born, now this may sound like, what What the heck is he talking about? How is that possible? But this is a true story. So I was born a long time ago in, in Greece. You know, that's back in the day when nobody was allowed in the birthing room, right? It was just, oh, there's no you're you're older than I am, uh, I think, right? The, I'm, I'm old enough to be your dad. I'm so old. I have no idea how old I am. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so back in those days, like you didn't have like Instagram or Facebook live or taking cameras and all that stuff like they do now. When, you know, there was nobody allowed in the birthing room. So as the story was told, except for my mom, of course, obviously, and the doctor. So my dad apparently shows up and asks this nurse, you know, Where's my son? Which one's my son? And my dad was kind of a tough Greek guy, you know, just whiskey smoking. And I guess there was like a little window. There's like five little babies and they're all like wrapped up in the same generic white blankets back in the day. So they all look kind of the same. They approach the window. And I guess at that moment I had a smile on my face. So the nurse turns to my dad, he goes, your son, he's the happy one. <laughs> and all of a sudden I, I was branded. So growing up in my home, I heard that story. It's like, well, you grew up, you, you came out of the womb happy. You've always been happy, like happy, happy, happy. So that was like my, my role, right? I was the happy one. Well, now, fast forward to 25 years, you know, now I'm in graduate school, getting my PhD in psychology, and we have a great professor who's talking to us about the difference between nature versus nurture. In other mm-hmm. words, is it your genetic predisposition that makes you who you are, or is it your environment? And of course, it's both. And I had this terrible thought. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know why I had this thought, but I remember having this sudden in the classroom. What if my dad shows up late? Like it's 15, he got caught in traffic. Shows up at the same hospital, comes up to the same nurse, asks the same question. And at that very moment, Elia is like, I have like stomach pains and I'm screaming my head off and I'm like crying and screaming. And the nurse looks to my dad, looks at me, and goes, your, your son, he's the cranky one. Mm. I'm raising my family like, well, you came out of the womb cranky. You've, you've always been a miserable little beep, you know. <laughs> like the message like I've been a miserable little, you know. So, why do I share this story? Because I believe that we've all been branded, it, it really happens early on in our lives. And if you look back at your life, everybody has a brand. Now, some brands are positive, for example, like obviously the happy brand. <laughs> I couldn't get a better brand, but there are other positive brands like. The smart one, the beautiful one, the princess, the creative one, the athletic one, the, the loving one, the kind one, like all these are wonderful brands. And if you have been branded any one of these, count your blessings. However, in my experience, both as a clinical psychologist, because the first half of my career for 18 years, I was a clinical psychologist in private practice. I saw hundreds and hundreds of people. And then, of course, I've lectured in front of you know tens of thousands. so on. Anyway, my experience has been, and my clients taught me that. That most people, unfortunately, have negative brands growing up. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will tell you the three most common. And you might say, Ilya, there's no way. But it's true, though, unfortunately. The three most common negative brands are the stupid one, the mm. ugly one, or the fat one. Mm. Now, are horrific brands for kids to grow up and then internalize and begin, because of how we view ourselves, obviously, Plays out and it has a direct impact in our lives and our happiness and in our misery and so on. So, fast forward, this, the Seven Past the Lasting Happiness comes out, becomes a number one bestseller, my, my first book. I start to travel and I speak and I you know do a lot of stuff and I start sharing the whole idea of branding. So, about four or five years ago, I'm at a conference in North Carolina. It was a women's conference. So, it's me up there in the podium and 500 women. And I'm kind of beginning to share the story that I just shared with you guys. Because the call to action for the attendees is, if you don't like your brand, today's the day, like basically to empower them to change their brand, like as an adult now, because a lot of them mm-hmm. inherited that brand as kids. And I'm like, today's the day. If you don't like, if you have a negative brand, today's your day, pick a different brand. Anyway, out of the corner of my eye, this old lady, like swear to you, she's in her 70s, gray hair, stands up and starts to, like, starts waving her arm, like so she kind of throws me off. I'm, you know, I'm giving my talk, right? But, but I can't ignore her. The audience is looking at me. They're looking at her. So at some point, I, I stop my talk. I'm like, yes, ma'am. Uh, would you like to say something? She goes, this is in front of all everybody. She goes, you know, after listening to you, I grew up with all three of those. I was called fat, stupid, and ugly in some expletives, some bad words on top of that. And she goes, you know what? After listening to you, I'm going to change my brand. Now the fact that she actually owned that in front, of, like I would never be that vulnerable, in, like in front of like five hundred strangers to say, "Hey, my whole life for seven decades I've been called fat, ugly, and stupid." I'm like, I was shocked. I mean, it got it got so quiet, Jasper. Like you could hear a pin drop. It got so quiet because the audience is looking at me, like, "How are you going to handle that?" I don't know how to handle that. I mean, like, I'm like, okay, well, ma'am, what would you like your new brand to be? And and her name was Leah, by the way, Leah. Like. Uh, she goes, well, from now on, I want to be known as Princess Leah, kind of like, kind of like Star Wars. So I'm like, yes, your majesty, and I bowed down to her, yes, your majesty, and you know, she starts laughing, everybody started laughing, and it became a very light-hearted moment. But why do I share this story? Because this is the important point. If a woman in her 70s, who for seven decades plus has viewed herself through those very, very, very negative lenses, has the power to change her brand, then anybody else can do it. And the contraction, of course, is if you have a positive brand, you're, you're lucky, count your blessings, live it to the to, to hilt, the right? But if you, don't have a, if you have a negative brand, don't live another day on this planet viewing yourself through those lenses.
0: That's a beautiful uh, story. So if I understand it correctly, a blockage towards happiness is that people have a negative brand or negative self-image, such as I'm stupid, ugly, or fat. Or worse. And, yeah, there are a lot of other things, but yeah, those are the main ones. The three main ones. And um, how do you actually uh, change that? Can you just decide it yourself, or, or how does that work?
1: I, I think, you know, I gave that example of this lady. I, I think, first of all, you need to become aware, because for most people, we believe it's this, you know, the self talk, right? This is what we've been taught. This is so we, we take it in as if it's true. But you know what? It's not true. And even though you might have inherited this brand when you were young, as an adult, you have a choice to either accept or reject something like that. And if you become aware said like just like this lady did, you know Princess Leia, said, I reject this brand, something different. I choose now. How that happens specifically, first, it starts with awareness. It starts with you choosing a different brand. And, of course, if you need to do some work with a coach or a counselor or whatever or a trusted advisor or your best friend, to work through some of the things throughout your life, you know, which we'll talk about too, you know, practice self-forgiveness and, and gratitude. I mean, you know, these are some of the pillars, of course, of, of happiness. It does take some work, but you can't do the work unless you're aware that you are, I've been living with this negative brand your entire life. So awareness is key. You have to be aware first and then choose because we always have a choice, right? In life. Mm-hmm. And I believe that happiness is a choice, by the way. It's also a skill set, meaning that if we learn to do certain things on a consistent basis, there's, I guarantee you'll find happiness. No question about it. So for some people, it's easier. Like for the happiness guy, for me, yes, happiness has always come easy to me for some reason. Either because I was told I was happy from the get go, or maybe that's my personality, my environment. I don't really know. But I, I realize that's not easy for everybody else. And But it is a skill set. You can learn. Yeah. Yeah, no question. So, first, you become aware. Second, yeah. you choose, and then three. Well, I think the three, then you, and part of, part of it is you know, practicing massive self care. Because I think, you know, I've written a couple of books, and the, the first, right? You the know, first chapter, first book, first path is self love, self care, which most people don't even like themselves, let alone love themselves. And, and what does self care look like, uh, you know, on a physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual level? Um, I created a personal health assessment, 20 questions, right? Five questions in each one of those four areas. And and I will send it to you so you can actually send it to your reader. It takes like two minutes to do, but what it gives you in return is how am I doing in these different areas, right? 20 questions, where am I doing well? Where am I doing so-and-so and what am I completely neglecting? So, you know, it's on a scale of one through five, five, I'm doing great, four, I'm doing it really good, three, you know, I'm doing it sometimes, which is, three is not a bad score, it just means there's room for improvement. But if you give yourself a score of one or a two in any one of these 20 questions, that's a red flag, because that has a direct impact on your health and your happiness. Hmm. So the call to action, of course, is once you have this assessment, and by the way, I take this assessment on the first of every month, myself, this is my own assessment, it's been... It's been used by hundreds of thousands of people, including physicians and nurses throughout the globe, especially during the pandemic, for themselves and for their patients. So this has gone to organizations all over the place. But I, I do it myself every month. It's almost like taking your pulse, You know, going to the doctor once a month and saying for a checkup, how am I doing?
0: Yeah.
1: It's not, it's not like you do it once and then you never do it again. This is an active, you know, it, like I said, it takes two or three minutes to do, but it gives you a wealth of information. You can celebrate your successes or the areas that you're doing well, but also look at some of the areas that you're not doing well and say, okay, in this, let's say physical health, in this, you know, one particular question, I'm a two right now. What do I need to do this coming month to make it into a four?
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I really would like to receive that uh, assessment. I'm curious how I am performing. Well, I will
1: will send it to you and then please send it. It's free. I just want everybody to use it. It's just a gift, you know, just because... It's been so helpful for so many people. I can't even tell you how many emails and say, this has saved my life. This is so good. I, it's like it's a living document. It's not like a one-time thing like a test. It's a day, it's an assessment. I would do it once a month. That's
0: that's amazing. I will add it to the episode, and I really want to do it. So you need to become aware. You make a choice, and then there are certain uh, practices that you can do, like self-love, self-care. You can fill in this assessment. Yeah. Can you elaborate a bit more on these seven paths to last, lasting happiness.
1: Yeah, of course. So that, so
0: that,
1: yeah, so that's the first one, right? So self-love, self-care, because if we don't take care of ourselves, nobody else will, really. Mm-hmm. Everybody waits for somebody else to do it for them. Like, no, I am responsible for my own happiness, personal responsibility. Nobody's responsible for my happiness but myself. <laughs> so that's where we, and that's why we practice self-care. And of course, the question had also been asked, asked to me, even on live television, um, is self-care selfish? It's an interesting question. In other words, it, it, are you saying we should focus on ourselves? And I'm like, no, self-care is not selfish. Self-care is mandatory. Yeah, right? It's a hygiene factor. Exactly. You know, nobody can eat healthy food but me. I, I'm responsible for a of my body. I'm responsible for my attitude. I'm responsible. So, So that's where we start off. And if I fill up my batteries, you know, then I'm able to be the best version of myself. Because I, I really believe that when the best version of ourselves walks around on this planet, it makes this world a better place. You know, happy people actually are very attractive. Like people are attracted to happy people; they're attracted to that energy, they're attracted to that positivity. Happy people are sexy. They don't have to be. It has nothing to do with looks. It's more about this confidence, this this positivity that exudes. Right? People like they want to be inspired. They want to be next to people like that. So that's where it starts off. The second, of course, path has to do with the gratitude, and of, and we all know you cannot be grateful and depressed at the same time physiologically, like physiologically in your brain. You cannot be in a grateful state and be depressed simultaneously. Now, it's easier to be grateful when things are going well in life. I think that's the easiest thing in the world. I can write on my gratitude journal. When I'm having a good day, it's endless. It's endless. However, life is not like that, and you know, I say that we're all graduates from the University of Adversity, mm-hmm. all of us, and the older we get, the more the adversity we have faced in life, the, the higher the degree, right? By the time you get to be my age, I have like two PhDs in adversity, When you're <laughs> getting, you know, because that's what happens when we get older, we, you know, eventually we lose people we love, initially grandparents and great aunts and uncles, and at some point our parents, and at some point even maybe our significant other or our brothers or sisters or, God forbid, a child. I've had so many friends who have lost children in this past two or three years. It's horrible. You know, we'll face adversity. If it's not a pandemic, it could be cancer, heart attack, disease, diabetes, um, relationship issues, divorces, you know, relations that don't work out, um, financial stress, No unemployment, underemployment, bankruptcy. I mean, you name it. Like, there's so much adversity in life. Yeah. That's how life is. So now the question is, can you be happy in the middle of adversity? And can you be grateful for it? Because that's the, the like, gratitude is number two. And you know who gave the best answer to that was the great and the one and only Nelson Mandela, who I love and respect and revere. Nelson Mandela said, in life, either you win or you learn. In other words, like as long as you're learning you're not there's no failure in life. If I can learn, either I win something or I learn from it, and I love that because with adversity, I don't know about you Ja, but the greatest lessons that I've learned in my own personal life have not come from my successes and I've had quite a few successes they come from my failures or so-called failures you know yeah. I learned more from the downside of life yeah. than I have things are going well I agree
0: like when you have certain failures or challenges in life, they, they help you grow. And um, related to that adversity, so um, Asha Lalai, our, our mutual friend, uh, she worked with Mo uh, Gaudat for a while, the, the other happiness uh, guy. And I think in, in his book, he says that happiness also has to do with the, the expectations that you have compared to reality. So the higher expectations, the, the higher the chance you will be uh, disappointed.
1: Uh, so, do you something to say about that reality? Because I, I, I talk about that, I have a different take on happiness, and uh, okay. so I'd okay. like to address that. Yeah, I
0: would like. Yeah,
1: so go ahead. So, I, you know, reality and expectations—great topic. I think the greater the gap between reality and expectations, the greater the pain, the greater mm-hmm. the frustration, the greater the like anger for you know someone. And I, and I use that even in, in business terms because I do a lot of corporate wellness and I, I spoke actually in Athens last month on a customer service conference and we talked specifically about that. Think about customer service, right? When somebody calls you up and they're mad, it's because they had certain expectations, but this was their reality. <laughs> like so they're mad, right? Yeah but when reality matches expectations, to me that equals happiness. Like you expected this and it happened, it's like great. And then once in a while, reality actually exceeds expectations. Like the the birth of your first child, or a sunset in Santorini, or the island of Maui, or whatever, you're like, "Wow, this is so much better!" than and that equals joy. Um, on a business perspective, when reality matches expectations, that equals trust. You provide a certain service or a certain, you know, product, and it matches my expectations. I trust that. I keep buying from the same grocery store, I keep going to the same airline, uh, the same, using the same bank, and so on. But when reality exceeds expectations as a consumer or as a customer, now that equals loyalty.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Just brands in the world that continue to exceed the expectations of the consumer. And therefore, I have the same bank that I've had for 30 years. They treat me like a king. I have two airlines that I fly a lot because they continue to exceed the expectations. And therefore, I become loyal. And therefore, I become the ambassador, if you will, to that particular brand. Like I do their marketing for them, you know, because I've had such a positive experience. So that's what I think about reality and expectations. The greater the gap, the greater the pain. But when they start matching or exceeding it, then that's a game changer.
0: I I, I see, yeah. And um, what is your view on uh, on expectation? I mean, there's people that say you you should surrender and you should not expect. Like like, how do you feel
1: expectation in life? How you deal with that? Yeah, I, I completely disagree with that. I, I think, like I said, the things that have been manifested lately, or, and have been amazing at manifestations lately, have been mindfulness and consciousness, like be very mindful and very conscious of uh, what you want in life. It's not magic. People say, well, you're lucky. I'm like, am I? Maybe I'm lucky. Like, it could be. But, but I think about these things. It's not like they just happen. I think about them, and I feel like when you're in the flow, the universe, God, you know, the d- divine, the just it, that supports you in your quest for happiness and wellness and so on. Can you elaborate on the theme of, of manifestation? How do you uh,
0: manifest certain things?
1: Well, I had an amazing example actually that happened like a couple of weeks ago with manifestation that just blew me—even it blew me away. Like I'm, like I said, I'm old. I don't get blown away that much anymore in life. But I have to share this with you because in way have a mutual friend, you know, Pascal Strauss. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Again, through the Asher connection. So two weeks ago, I'm going to call with somebody who's in Dubai, a really good friend of mine, Rajiv Daswani. And he's just, uh, he has his own happiness center in uh, in, in Dubai. And he Anyway, he's this wonderful man. He and I have been collaborating he said, I love all your stuff that you're doing. We both spoke at the International Happiness Day together. That's where we met. And he's like, would you be my mentor? And I'm like, sure. And I mean, I just love that man. Anyway, he opens up a happiness center in Dubai. It's like I have one in the United States. And he's actually showing me around on the Zoom call, right? He's like, this is it. I, I can't wait for you to come. You know, just feel free to use the, the space. And, and uh, you know, on his website, he's asked me to put all my products, like all my my services, my programs and all that stuff, which I've done. So at the end of the call, I write to him. I'm like, great to see you. Give my love to your beautiful family. And by the way, I'm coming to Dubai in uh, 2023. And then I write, I am manifesting it with an exclamation point. And I kind of did that kind of like teasingly, like tying in cheek a little bit. I'm like, dude, bring me to Dubai. Stop talking about it. Like, I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's do it. You know, (laughs) I just wrote it down that I am coming to Dubai 2023. You know, I'm manifesting it. End of that Zoom call. The next one, back-to-back, back, I'm on a call with Pascal, and he's introducing me to his business partner. I won't bore you with all the great details. At the end of this, so he just wants to see how we can collaborate and work together, and we're in the hospitality industry. You know, We have this program called Health, Happiness, and Hospitality. And he just wants to see if his two partners you know, can get along. We get along, fine. At the very end of that phone call, which is an hour later than what I wrote to, to Rajiv, his partner says to me, um, you know, the next few months we're going to be coming out to, uh, we're going to do some training at the Hilton in Athens. And of course I'm like, Athens, I'm like, you mean I'm in Greece? He goes, yeah. Well, I'm like, well, you need a translator clearly because I'm Greek. And we start laughing and you got to bring me on it. He goes, of course, I'd love to have you come be part of the training. And then he says, what are you doing in January 16th through the 18th of 2023? I'm like, why? I'm like, I'm pretty flexible. Why do you ask? He goes, because after listening to you and getting to know you, I want to invite you to this uh, three-day conference. I think you would be great at it, and it's taking place in Dubai. Ah, oh, wow! <laughs> like that happened literally one hour. It was two back-to-back Zoom calls with two different, and he invited me to speak in Dubai in January of 2023. So of course I'm like, "What did you say?" He goes, "Why?" I said, "Did you actually say Dubai?" He Goes, "Yeah." Is that a problem? Go, "No, it's not a problem." But you're not going to believe what happened an hour ago. I just wrote that in a different email, like. So I had to forward that email to Pascal and to Hubert because nobody would believe the story. So, of course, Pascal says to me, you know, that's an incredible manifestation. Like, you got to share that story with people because you're basically saying, maybe there are no limits to what we can manifest. Like, he could have invited me and said, you know what? I, what are you doing January 16th through the 18th? I want you to speak in Amsterdam or Munich or London or Paris or Athens or Los Angeles or New York. But he said Dubai, which is the exact same thing I put on my email 56 minutes earlier. Like, you know, that's a pretty amazing thing that happened. So, so what, what so, I hear in your story, maybe there are no limits to manifestation. So, what I hear in your story is you
0: need to be clear about your own desires and then you also communicate them with
1: people, right? And communicate as if it's like I said, I, I didn't say, you know, for years I was like, it, it would be nice sometimes someday to, uh, Go and speak in Dubai, you know, it's like new market in the Middle East, I would love to do that. It was more like wishful thinking,
0: more like daydreaming
1: and I daydream a lot too, like I daydream a lot uh, throughout my life but this time it wasn't daydreaming and it wasn't wishful thinking, it was a, a definitive statement in my email I am coming to Dubai in 2023 and then I actually wrote the words, I am manifesting it with an exclamation point point." and 56 minutes later I get invited to speak in Dubai in January of 2023 That's beautiful, so so to be a happy
0: person, it is important to, to be clear about your, your wishes and then... Yes.
1: Uh, then That's not you... coincidence. There's, there's no coincidence, people. That's coincidence. No, it's astronomical. The odds of somebody saying that out of all the countries in the world for January of 2023, just after I wrote it, there are no, there's no coincidence. That's yeah. a pure manifestation of, of something.
0: That's a beautiful um, example. And um, your new reality uh, TV show... Um, is that also about manifestation and happiness? Yes, or what, what's yes about? I'm
1: manifesting. That, that's the next thing. So we fi- we just finished filming season one, and we're now I'm going to manifest even live on you. You're the first. I'm saying it publicly now. I'm manifesting that we're going to get picked up by a network. Um, I'm attending actually Con in France uh, in October. Uh, the MIPCOM, which is the biggest event where people sell uh, product and content and so on to uh, yeah. networks and so on. I'm manifesting that somebody's going to buy my the TV show, which is called the Kindness Factor, and uh, which is a show basically. We're interviewing people from who have themselves overcome tremendous odds, trauma, difficulties, and as a result of that, they've created their own nonprofits and are helping other people to overcome. And uh, so these to me are the unsung heroes, right? Nobody really knows about them. So part of the, the our TV show, The Kindness Factor, is to showcase them to the world mm. and then have the audience, of course, if they want to, uh, contribute either financially or their time or their talents to support these beautiful causes. And it's endless, Jasper. There's so many people doing so many good things. Just nobody knows about them. So right. that's our goal. That's the premise of the TV show. Like I said, we filmed season one already, 10 episodes and we're very excited to get it on the air because i someone taught me during this uh, podcast
0: uh, project that sometimes the medicine that you receive is is something that you give to others later uh, like a certain trauma and then you can heal others but can you give one specific example of someone that is part of this kindness uh, factor and
1: i can i'm going to spill the beans a little bit yes i'm not going to give me his name but there's a i give the first name only his name is eric this man Lost his eyesight when he was 14 years old. So he was born like you know, the, but he had something that happened to him, he lost his eyesight. He was 14 years old, devastating, right? Because it's not like he was born blind, he he had the vision, he was like a normal kid, and then things happened to him, and you know, he completely lost his eyesight. Major trauma, of course, changed his whole life, you know, and but somehow he found it somewhere inside him. And and his his whole company is called, I mean, the organization is called No Barriers. Like there are no barriers, if you put. And he became the first human being, I want to listen to this, in the, in the history of the world, the first person to climb Mount Everest while blind. Wow. And he went on to climb the top seven peaks in every continent besides Mount Everest. The first blind person to do that. And as a result of him overcoming, you know, his lack of sight in essence, and living a full life, like very active, physically very active. He started this organization called No Barriers, and the rest is history. He wrote a book, became a number one bestseller. Anyway, and Eric, he, he's just one example. And now, you know, he takes people uh, who have trauma, including veterans, um, you know, military folk, you know, who have suffered trauma, and helps them to climb. And basically say there are no barriers i mean i don't know his exact process how he, his organization does it but it's a remarkable remarkable story and that's just one of the interviews that we did that's beautiful so he climbed uh, the mount Everest. it's a inspiration for others right to exactly to, to think he's, he's blind i mean think about that like how incredible that is that he obviously has a team around him that did do it together but the point is it, it's just remarkable like he's just a remarkable human being and so inspirational. And so we just wanted people to know more about him and uh, and other organizations that do great stuff. That's a beautiful example. And um, I'm actually curious: when you
0: pick these people, do you have a certain list of criteria, or
1: do you pick intuitively? Uh, you know, we had uh, we kind of picked intuitively for the first season. You know, it was very localized here in the United States. But my goal, and of course, is that I believe the kindness factor. We'll do one in, you, kindness factor in the U.K., of Factor of the Netherlands, Kindness Factor Greece, Kindness Factor Dubai, Kindness Factor South Africa, Kindness Factor Canada. I mean, because there's kind people in every country, in every area, actually, in organizations, mm-hmm. just nobody knows about them. And I want people to interview and say, you know what, there's so many people say this world is just a disaster. Like there's all this negativity. And of course, the news and the media and television, that's what they promote. Where this show is a positive content reality TV show, we're not bashing anybody else. We're not cussing anybody about it. We're showcasing good, good people who have had difficult lives, who struggle a lot, who've overcome a lot, and now have chosen again. The key word is choice. They have chosen to do something about it to make this world a better place, and I want to put the spotlight on them. That's uh, so. That's it.
0: That's a great,
1: uh, great idea. And um,
0: initially. Yeah. You're the happiness doctor. You're the happiness center. So why did you choose the kindness factor instead of happiness? Like, why did you shift the, the wording?
1: Uh, you know what? Um, because the idea was that my partner came up with the idea. I had already done a reality TV show about four years ago. And I was an executive producer of that. So when he found that out, he approached me with his idea. And at first, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I was, at first, I'm like, I was trying to figure out how is that a show, though? Like, you know, okay, kindness is good. And I think kindness is very cool, but how can we make a show out of that? And we figured out the formula and then we figured out that not only does the formula work, but you can never run out of people to interview. There are so many, I can't even tell you how many, I can do 10 seasons and do 10 episodes a season and I will never run out of a new organization doing good stuff. So yeah, yeah, there's some criteria, but basically have they had, what is their own personal journey? I think that's part of the criteria. And and once you hear their journey and what they've overcome, because, you know, you you can have a very good life and still create a charitable organization and do that, and there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But to me, it's really inspirational when somebody themselves, personally, have overcome, like the blind person, like Eric, and, and look what he's done with his life. It's remarkable. And now that he chose not only to overcome his own, difficulties and disabilities and so on but yeah. was able to inspire so many people like yeah
0: that's, that's beautiful i am really curious to to see these uh, episodes and um oh you will as
1: soon as we get picked up believe me that will be all over social media it's just uh-huh. and I'm, I'm manifesting this life here on on the podcast with you it's the first time i'm doing it publicly we're coming this up and we're uh, we're gonna be on the that, front. that's amazing so
0: if someone is listening in the tv world maybe this is a great idea. And the question I have, because let's say someone is listening and and, and someone wants to be kind, a limiting belief could be that you can't generate any money with kindness. So can you share a bit all these people that you interview, how they deal with the practical sides of life or or financial side of life?
1: No, and I think that's a very good point, which is also one of the reasons for the show, because a lot of times, you know, really big charities have the media and have celebrities endorsing them and so on. So they do, they do get money coming in. For some of the smaller, it, that's one of the struggles that they have, right? So that's one of the reasons why. So every episode, basically there are two hosts, uh, me and, and Barbara Brooks, great lady. So we go out and we interview two, two separate organizations and, and then we come back and report kind of. And at the end of the show, we look at the camera and like, tell the audience, hey, if Barbara's story or organization resonated with you, please contribute. And the audience can contribute either money, their time as volunteers, or maybe their resources. Like there was one lady that uh, here in Colorado that her charity basically is um, like shoes and jackets and gloves for homeless children. Because she used to be homeless. Hmm. And so there's a different way. The audience can contribute by saying, hey, I'm going to drop off at this address, you know five jackets or four pair of gloves or some boots or something like Like you can contribute in all kinds of ways. And that helps us to support these organizations financially with time and resources. So you also
0: hope that by giving them exposure, that it will be easier for them to attract some financial resources. Yeah.
1: But that's part of the, yeah, that's part of the, yeah, exactly. That's the premise of the show. Yes. And um, in
0: your career
1: um, has financials
0: has been a challenge. Like when you shift to happiness, uh, some people might wonder, like, how can this this person like pay the bills? Has that been a challenge or, or or not?
1: Well, you know, I had a I had a full practice as a clinical psychologist for the longest time, and I loved it. And then I got burned out, and I got sick, and it almost like took me out. I, when I had so I had to transition. I made a major transition in my life, uh, and I was still young, and I had young kids at home. Um, And I became an executive coach and a leadership training and development. So I I shifted from private practice one-on-one. So that first year of transition, of course, wasn't easy. That was also when the economy had, like, tanked, like, back in 2000, you know, with the meltdown and the financial So, yeah, we had one rough year. But then, you know, you transition to something else. As long – I believe that if you do something you're passionate about, the money comes. I'm never driven by money. I am driven by making a difference.
0: Yeah.
1: So you need to be uh... – If, that's the key. Like, if if you if you have purpose and passion, then uh, I have felt like the money has always come. You know, That's I think it's about
0: trusting, right? Like, I I talk to people that want to make a shift and they have these barriers. I'm also someone I don't see too many barriers, and I trust that it will come. Um,
1: how yeah, can someone? Can- yeah. yeah, you trust in sure. the positive outcome.
0: Yeah. So how can someone make a? Uh, let's say someone wants to transition into a, a kind career, what, what can be a first step for
1: someone? I mean, the, I, I don't know if there's money in kindness per se, like I, I think, uh, but there are, there's more and more evidence that when we create a kind-centered culture, corporate organization or, or whatever, or a happy culture, because that's, you know, this is what I teach to, to companies organizations, that it does affect the bottom line. Because the funny thing is that when I started saying this, like working with executives back when I started about happy, happy employees and the benefits of that, this was before all the Forbes and the Gallup and the Harvard studies. that They didn't exist back then. <laughs> so, so And here I am, like this happy guy, you know, and the CEOs that would hire me, I'm like, Ilya, we, we all think you're a really nice guy. And we like having you around, but you don't know what the hell you're talking about. I pay these people to work and I get to work. <laughs> that's, that's what they used to tell me. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. you happy. Because to me, intuitively, even back then, now it's easier because all the studies are out, so I don't have to prove anything to anybody. But back then, happy employees, first of all, they're physically healthier. Actually, nobody actually talks about that part, that if when you're happy, you're physically healthier, meaning there's less sick days. Because, you know, you're like, like you're fit. So there's a huge savings to the company. The fact that their employees are healthier because they're happier, but then they're more creative. They're more innovative. Um, they're better teammates. And why are they better teammates? Because their are are full because they practice self-care. So they're able to help their colleagues. And in the end, they're more productive. And as a result of that, the company is more profitable. So there's a direct link and kindness and happiness are connected. You can't have one without the other. Happy people by nature perform acts of service and acts of kindness, not random acts, conscious acts, right? Yeah. On the flip side, when we perform acts of service in kindness towards others, something happens to us innately, right? There are chemicals that are mm-hmm. released in our brain. They're happy, you know, free drugs, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's why, I don't know how you can make a career out of it, but uh, happiness and kindness and uh, creating cultures like that in organizations, the benefits are huge, not, not only for the personal wellness of the employees and the staff and so on, but all the way down to the bottom line, where companies are better as a result of that.
0: So you're, you're saying that over the past decades, when you were active in this field, more and more evidence is there. That happens. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, because more. I started in 2005. So, I mean, that back then, I mean, yeah, now it's like the evidence is all over the place. I, you know I don't have to preach anything.
0: And and Harvard is paying attention. All these magazines,
1: with information. Yeah,
0: do you believe that companies? Because some companies have a chief happiness officer. Is yeah. that a requirement for increasing happiness, or can it be done in other ways? How do
1: companies practically implement it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you look at Gary Vee's organization. You know, he's the one that created the first chief happiness officer with Claude Silver. Mm-hmm. And what a phenomenal lady she is! Like, and and really, like, yes, that that is the example. I think that every organization should have a chief happiness officer, which is not HR, by the way. It's different. It's someone who truly looks after the happiness and wellness of each one of the employees, and the benefits that are huge. Um, a lot of, a lot of companies, like the biggest struggle that organizations have had, especially during the pandemic, was to ensure the physical and mental well-being of their employees. And I think companies, organizations did a fairly decent job in ensuring the physical well-being of their employees back then. Masks, working from home, social distancing, and, and all that stuff. But they didn't do a very good job for the mental health of their employees. And as a result of that, I mean, I knew that was, that was coming. That's why I wrote the, my second book, co-wrote it, um, Seven Keys to Navigating a Crisis. How do I emotionally deal with pandemics and other disasters? because and that was, it was the first book to market in the world because it came out in May of 20. I'm thinking about how early that is, because I could feel that there would be a tsunami of mental health issues across the globe as a result of the pandemic, the closures, the shutdowns, you know, all, all that stuff. And of course we know that, I don't know if there's anybody who has not been impacted by what's happened the last two or three years across the globe, but depression, anxiety and stress, PTSD and so on, suicidality, drug use or abuse, are all-time highs.
0: Yeah. And if you look at the seven keys to navigating a crisis, uh, what is the
1: the key, key, <laughs> if you had to pick one out of these seven? You know, it, it's not so much the keys. And self-care, of course, is one of them. Be, being aware, you know, uh, choice kindness is, is another one. Having a positive attitude, being flexible and adaptable, that's huge. But the biggest thing that we discovered, my partner, uh, Coach Khan, and I wrote this book, when people face challenges and this isn't about the pandemic only it's about any challenge we face in life they typically fall into four categories mm-hmm. personality types how we respond basically to crisis or challenges and this is a key factor um the, the first one is the victim so the victim of course is why is this happening to me poor me right <laughs> well, why as if it's only happening to me and not seven billion other people right but anyway doesn't <laughs> work <laughs> the, the second one the second one is the critic now the <laughs> critic will just criticize everything any suggestion any idea whatever it, it's like you know it reminds me of a Winston Churchill uh, quote when they asked me what's the difference between an optimist and a pessimist and he said an optimist finds a solution to every problem a pessimist finds a problem to every solution <laughs> so the critics <laughs> So the critics are like, and this is a kind of a silly example. Let's use masks because that's very controversial, right? It has been divided everybody. Masks, masks, divides everybody. Here's a critic approach to masks. Ilya, you should wear a mask. Well, that's stupid. Okay, Ilya, don't wear a mask. What are you trying to do, kill me? (laughs) Like, it doesn't matter which way you go. They just criticize everything, right? (laughs) They're frustrated. They're angry. They're critical. That's number two. The third personality type we call the bystander. And the bystander, mind you, a, a decent fellow, but so overwhelmed by the changes that are taking place that they are basically frozen in fear. In other words, they don't know what to do. They, they're so overwhelmed by the shutdown, the lockdown, the up, the opening, the closing, they don't know what they're frozen in fear. So what all three of these personality types have in common, of course, is that they don't offer a solution to anything. Others, for me, or I get mad, or I'm frozen in fear, I don't know what to do. And now comes the fourth personality type, which we like to call the navigator, which was the premise of the book. And is the premise of this whole movement of how do we successfully navigate through life? Now, before I tell you what navigators do really well, is that all four of those personality types exist within each human being. In other words, we all have it. It's not like, well, Dr. Ely is a navigator and you're this. No, we all have all of that. Mm -hmm. Key is this. If you want to play the victim, like, listen, or be in March of 2020, in one week, Jasper, all my speaking engagements across the world got canceled. One Mm -hmm. email after another, shut down, everything, completely. Like, all my work was gone. So I was like the bison, like, what the hell am I going to do now? Like, I was frozen, I didn't know what to do. And I was supposed to speak in Barcelona, actually, of October, like, and I was excited about it. I've never been to Spain or Barcelona, wanted to go, canceled. Actually, the conference did happen, but it happened on Zoom here. It's not the same thing as being in Barcelona. So I kind of felt like a victim, like, poor me. I'm not going to go there, whatever. And was I critical of the government from time to time because I felt like they missed, you know, they made some mistakes in how they handle it? You're darn right. And I was right about being mad. However, if I stay mad or angry or frustrated for six months towards the government, who am I hurting? Them or my own personal health and happiness? So... If you want to be the critic, do it for half an hour, get it out of your system, Mm -hmm. vent, and then pivot and move over and become a navigator. If you Mm -hmm. want to feel sorry for yourself because we're not perfect human beings and sometimes we have down days, do it for 45 minutes and then shift and become a navigator. Because navigators, number one, they practice massive self-care. Like the first thing they do, they take care of themselves in every level. And that's where the personal health assessment came from. It actually came out of this exercise. What do navigators do, right? Navigators are aware, like they're huge awareness. So they're very open to hearing that whatever, the, whatever voice you call that. If you're a spiritual person, you might say, well, it's the spirit or the Holy Ghost, whatever. If you're not a spirit, you can say, it's that still small voice that's quiet. Maybe it's your higher self or your intuition. I don't care what you call that voice. Listen to it. And more importantly, when you download that information, act upon it. Because in the end, in life, you know, it doesn't matter what we know. What matters is what we do with what we know. We mm-hmm. repeat that. Otherwise, knowledge without application is just education. I can go out and read the top 10 books on happiness, highlight them, underline them to death. And then when I'm done, I put them back on the bookshelf, never to see them again. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Now I know more about happiness, but I'm not any happier. As a matter of fact, I actually think I'm more frustrated because I have more knowledge, but my life still is not going in the right direction, right? I, I so see. Life. What matters? What do we do with what we know? It's so navigators move into action quickly, like they prepare, they're aware, they practice self-care. You know, they practice great flexibility and I, and they're very flexible and adaptable. That's a huge part of success in life, by the way. I see. So
0: I get two points out of this part. So first of all, there's different types. So the victim, the critic, the navigator, for instance, and you have these different elements in you. So you can be a
1: victim for a bit, a critic for a bit, but at some point you want to move. to But nothing. you don't want to be a victim for like six months. Like poor mm-hmm. me, like sit on the couch and be complain, like look at the TV and yell or whatever. That's, you know, that's what I'm saying. Get it out of your system, but don't yeah. stay stuck there. So you get it out of
0: your system and then you move on. And then secondly, it's not about what you know, but about what you do with what you know. It's very similar. I spoke to an embodiment teacher and uh, she said, the best way to, to do something is to do it. And I found that such a... Such a <laughs> it's so simple, though, isn't it? So simple. <laughs> simple, right? <laughs> it is, it, it's a good piece of, uh, of wisdom. So I want to talk a bit. Um, so you you work on individual happiness and you work on organizational happiness. Yes. You've written some books about it. Yes. And I've researched your history and there seem to be two domains where you have some knowledge about. Addiction is one and relationships is the other. Yes, these can be blockages for happiness, right? Absolutely. Um, So, uh, let's start with addiction. You wrote your PhD about the influence of
1: psychotherapy on people. Alcoholics Anonymous, yes, I did. Yes, so can you share a bit about that? Yeah, you you know, anytime you know somebody gets a PhD, or uh, part of that is they write a thesis or a dissertation, which it, in essence, is an is an original contribution to the field, whether it's physics or chemistry or biology or psychology or whatever. So I had a, and I was interested in Alcoholics Anonymous, and so I did my study. It was very hard to even get AA to allow you to do a study in them because they're anonymous and so on anyway, but I was able to do it, which was remarkable uh, and so grateful to that organization. And, you know, what I discovered, you know, as we had certain hypotheses that people that, you know, Went to individual therapy long-term meaning a a year or longer, were and also attended AA a year or longer, had a higher self-esteem, had lower self-destructive behaviors, and lower depression. And I had four different groups. So the idea is that you know, group therapy or or AA or whatever can contribute in a meaningful way. It, It can do things that individual therapy can't. On the flip side, there are things that you can get done individually, you can't get on a group level. So when you combine the two and so that was my dissertation. I got you know I started my private practice. Well, as a result of that, I started like treating a lot of like addicts in my practice, and I you know, and hard work. People who had you know had led, and I can pretty much tell you every addict had a negative brand. Going mm-hmm. back to the branding store, every single one of them, not one of them had like this positive, you know, uplifting brand. Which of course you know these negative brands lead to self defeating thoughts and the self defeating thoughts lead lead to self destructive behaviors and then it becomes this full cycle you know they have a very high inner critic and they're beating themselves up there's no self love of course um, but you know I was I, I was good I had a gift I had a gift and I was able to help so many people overcome their addictions basically given them the tools they did the work i didn't do the work but i got to know them i gave them the tools i held them accountable and it's been so beautiful to see so many people change their lives and and uh I mean, even after like twenty years, I still get like Christmas messages, like "Thank you so much." You know, it's, it's beautiful. Like these people, I haven't seen for like twenty years because their lives, like they healed. And so, of course, the healing is all about self love. It's, it's it's not about the, the whatever the I don't care if it's pornography, cocaine, drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever, spending money. In the end, it's all about self love.
0: So, when you have an addiction, it's beneficial to have a combination of individual support and, and group support. I think so, yes. I and think. it's it's useful to uh, to analyze if you have a certain negative yeah, self-image, negative brand, and practice self-love. Um, what I've experienced, for instance, I'm living alcohol-free uh, nowadays, which uh, makes me feel really happy. But I still have this obsessive coffee consumption behavior. So I feel whenever I, I get rid of something, then, then there's still something else. Um, but I, I won't say that it's like an an urgent problem like that. It ruins my
1: life, but it's a bit annoying to me. So how you'll never get pulled over for, uh, you know, drinking coffee when you're driving. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, going to Pull him over. I think he's like, I have too much coffee. I mean, that's never going to happen. No. Uh, so whatever you replace alcohol with. Okay. Again, the great Greek philosopher Aristotle said everything in moderation, nothing yeah. wrong with coffee. Coffee is great, but in moderation, right?
0: That's yeah. The thing. Yeah. I see. So that that's that's important. And how? But how do I? Um, let, so this is. Uh, let's say I want to reduce my, my my coffee consumption. Like, where?
1: What's your practical advice? How do you? Where do you start? I mean, are you drinking three times the amount you would like to drink? Five times? Ten times? Or just one extra cup of coffee a day? I mean, it's. I don't know where are you. At? Three times. You drink three coffees a day. No, three t- like maybe like six. Oh yeah, that, dude, that's way too much. <laughs> that's a lot of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, your body does not need six cups of coffee a day. That's for sure. So,
0: so, so where where do I start? Is it just like I say I, I drink less, or do I need to do a certain exercise? And I'm asking mm-hmm. it because many people have these problems, man. Yeah.
1: How did you fin? How did you end alcohol? Because you you cut a cold turkey, like you don't drink at all, right? How did you yeah. do?
0: I uh, at some point I quit for 6 months it felt great yeah, But how, went, how did you do that it was a um I, I was in a plane from the Netherlands to the United States so it was a geographical shift and I missed my plane and at the airport I was was having dinner and drinks alone and I woke up with a hangover and I, I was like I really want this to stop so I was like when I entered the United States I want to quit and I attended a ceremony in Maine it was like this uh, yeah, some kind of sp- ceremony, and and there I decided to shift, with some support of the two people in the ceremony.
1: So you just gave the answer. You you just gave yourself the answer. I decided. Uh, you you gave the answer. The answer is not coming from me; came from you. That's why I was trying to take you back to that path. Yeah, I decided. Yeah, so once we a- make a decision, then we set the wheels in motion. You know. Yeah. And you don't need a hangover to actually or to get on a plane or to even, eat, you know, you need to decide where, how much do you feel comfortable with? Is it a couple of cups a day or two or three? I would say not more than that. I don't think you need more than like two or three cups a day of coffee. Honestly. I mean, I think that that's a really good point. So I need to make the decision. And, and why
0: is it difficult for people sometimes to make a decision? Like, because you say happiness is a choice. Like. What's the underlying phenomenon why that's not always easy?
1: No, it's not always easy. It takes some work. But everything starts from awareness. Like now you're aware that it was a decision you made that led you to stop drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. Oh, you replicate that same process. It's a decision. I don't know when you're going to make that decision. It could be six months from now or it could be today where you make that decision. You know what? Drinking six cups of coffee is no longer serving me. It's no longer serving my purpose. Maybe I needed it initially when I quit alcohol to like, you know, fill that gap, that hole maybe, but it's not serving me anymore. I don't need to do that anymore. Two or three cups a day is fine. Yeah. And then you make that shift, but you have to consciously choose. Nobody is putting a gun to your head and say, drink less coffee. You have to choose that. (laughs) Alcohol, like nobody made you choose alcohol. You chose to, to quit. Something that's to me a lot harder than actually, you know, slowing down your, caffeine intake <laughs> you know you did something much harder than this you've done something much harder than uh, what you're about to so i want to talk to you in a month and you tell me you know what i decided after a call on that podcast and i'm like down to two or three and i, I feel really good about myself
0: yeah i see but it's uh it's coming back to the discussion we had earlier so it's one it's awareness two it's choice and then three it's implementing and, and adding the skills exactly that it makes a lot of sense so that's that was the topic of um, uh, addiction. And then the other topic is the, the, the relationship because I saw a YouTube video of you uh, where you talk about uh, marriage and relationships. And uh, one uh, thing you said that was inspiring to me, it was mean what you say, but don't mean, mean when, when you say-, say Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, can you elaborate a bit on that? So this is the, here's the thing. Let's say you do everything. You practice all the self-care. You take care of yourself physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You practice gratitude, even adversity. You practice forgiveness of others and self-forgiveness, which is even more important. You're kind to people. You have a positive attitude. You do all that stuff, right? But if you surround yourself with toxic people, then unfortunately, that can undermine everything you've, you're trying to do because it's very hard to be around toxic people and be happy if you surround yourself with toxicity, right? Because it does rub off. So I made a decision, like really when I transitioned out of psychology and I learned my lessons, I got really sick. I had some big lessons to learn that I no longer want to toxic people in my life. Mm. And I don't have any toxic people in my life. And people say, you must be exaggerating. There's no way you don't have any. I said, I don't. And they're like, well, how's that possible? I'm like, Oh, it's possible. Well, what if it's a family member? I'm like, it's possible, even then, a little harder, but it's possible. And they're like, "Well, how do you do that?" Here's how you eliminate toxic people from your from your life, because that's a huge contributor to your happiness.
0: Mm.
1: It's that's a huge contributor. Like, talk, get, eliminating toxic people from your life is a huge contributor to your to your life to your happy life. It starts off by how you show up in relationships. So the responsibility is on you first. So. Let's take you and I as an example. If I show up, if I treat you, Jasper, with love, kindness, and respect consistently, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I show up in our relationship, you and I. Then I have every right to expect that you will treat me with love, kindness, and respect in return. In other words, I can't be a jerk to you and expect you to be nice to me. Like that's not, I have to show up a certain way. But as long as I do, if you don't treat me with love, kindness, and respect, I'm going to call you out on it. And I'm gonna you and I are gonna have what I'd like to call a uh, hot conversation, H-O-T, which stands for honest, open, and transparent. That's hot, honest, open, and transparent. In the conversation, because I've done so many of these, it goes something like this. Jasper, do you feel like for the most part I treat you with love, kindness, and respect? And you're like, Yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah, why of course, yes. Well, I feel like you don't do that in return and if that doesn't change our relationship is over until you're able to and i I never throw away the key especially if it's a family member i'm like but i won't tolerate that so until you're ready to treat me with love kindness and respect you i'm not going to be spending too much time with you man i love you i care about you i wish you well but i can't have your toxicity directed towards me i don't need it i don't deserve it it's not mine it's yours so do something about it. If you want to have a relationship with me, if you don't, then that's fine, then we're done. People, first of all, are not used to that kind of honesty, openness and transparency. When, when, but when you say it from a place of love versus from a place of anger, it is a very different, it's very healing. And every time I've done that with somebody, they have like their best selves has shown up. Some of them were like, "Well, I didn't know that. I'm sorry, I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware that I was being that way. Again, they become awareness, they make a change, then we can be loving, connected, and have a great relationship. But I won't, I won't put up with somebody being unkind, unloving you know, towards me as long as I show up in the right way towards them. That's the key. So, Because I don't have a leg to stand on if I'm a jerk to them and expect them to be nice to me. Like, like well, you're an idiot too. Okay, so I have to show up a certain way. So I like this hot... Uh, thing
0: and I, I recently have been uh, dabbling a bit into tantra and in tantra it's also about radical honesty and, and openness and transparency
1: yes it's
0: actually really refreshing once you start applying it to your life
1: Oh, well, dude it's so refreshing it's the best like also, I, and, also. I, and awesome. I do that in every relationship i have like all the time even with total like even with strangers but i try to come from a place of love when you say that because some people like let, let me give you some constructive criticism well, you know what? There's nothing constructive about criticism. That's an oxymoron, actually. That's, that doesn't make any sense. Constructive criticism. Nobody ever got better if they got criticized enough. They got resentful, you know? So, yeah. but you can have hot conversation with people from a place of love. It's very powerful because you're also modeling to them a certain behavior. This is how we talk to people. I look you in the eye. I'm like, look, dude, do I, do I treat you with love, kindness, and respect? Yes or no? Yes, you do. Okay. Having said that, I expect you to do the same for me, and if you don't, then we have an issue. Period. Yeah. That's simple. It's not a long conversation, by the way. It's a short conversation. That's um, that. That that's absolutely
0: good. The, the honest, open transparency. And uh, you mentioned about toxic relationships. That it's important to eliminate them. But yes. I think there's two uh, ways uh, to do that, right? So one is you're proactive. You proactively communicate certain things, or two is that you you let go. You know, you don't, um, you don't reach out anymore. You just kind of let it like happen a bit. So yes. which of the two is, is most effective or, or, or does it depend on the situation? How does no, that
1: work? No, it's, it, the, the, the question is a different, do you want to be in a relationship with that person? Hmm. It could be your sister-in-law. It could be your, you know, nephew, niece, whatever. It could be a family member. If you do, then I suggest the first path, which is to have an honest, hot, discussion with them, because you do love them, you care about them, you'd like to have them, but not under their circumstances. If you, if you really don't care about that person at all, I mean, I would still, I don't know, I would still have the conversation because I just think it would help them to perhaps become aware of how they come across other people, because most people, you know, I mean, you look at bullies, you know, bullies are the unhappiest people in the world. I've never met a happy bully. <laughs> I think about that <laughs> because, because happy people don't bully anybody. Happy people don't want to control anybody. Happy people don't put anybody else down because their own batteries are full. You know, who puts other people down unhappy people, miserable mm-hmm. people within themselves. Right. So, uh, so would I not say something if I didn't really care about them, maybe let them go. But my personality is more, Now I'm going to have this conversation with them, you know, and they made sure by the way not to be live, kind and respectful, which makes my job a lot easier because then I cut them out. That's it. They cut themselves out, actually. I'm not doing it. It's their own behavior that cuts them out. Yeah, I okay. see.
0: So the, the approach really depends on whether you want to maintain a relationship. If you want, it's very important
1: to address certain things. If you don't I want think, well, if you if you want it, then definitely have that hot conversation with them, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that
1: that 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 is that is important. And um um it's not it always takes, i mean it takes practice listen i'm used to it because i've been doing it a lot but initially it can be a little scary to, to be honest open and transparent because but there's so much freedom like you said jasper like it, it makes relationships move to the next level when you have this kind of conversation with them
0: yeah and, and sometimes uh it, it clears uh clear- yeah. Sometimes- it's a big topic and then you discuss and then you're actually the other person agrees or it becomes way lighter. So I, um, yeah, I like it. I've been practicing that as well and it really helps me. So there's a lot of, um, uh, wisdom already in this, uh, talk. Let me think a bit if I have any other questions. Yeah. And uh, something was popping through my mind. So what, what we have in common is that we lost our mom at a young age. I was one and you were uh, 22. And, um, the impact it has had on my life, I've been very aware that life can be short. So I've always right. tried to, to follow my heart. And when I meet someone, I like to ask them questions to understand what really motivates them. And I always like to uh, help them take a next step toward, towards what really matters to them. Uh, but what I mean, you already touched a bit about it, but what has been the impact on your life that your mom
1: passed away quite young? I think, first of all, my mom was this beautiful lady inside and out, and she was beloved by both men and women. She wasn't just loved. She was like, my mom was all love and happiness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, towards the end, the very last words that she shared with me, right, you know, were my boys, she said to me, and this was in Greek, of course, on her dying bed. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be just fine. I just want you to be happy. And, th- and that was like her last her last statement to me, right? And And I feel like I've I've done that. Like, I feel like I've honored my mom and a lot. A lot of people, say, you know, I have so much love in my heart. Like my heart is like just on steroids, just big. I just love big. I have, it's endless, by the way. Even my wife, I'm like, what have you been here for 32 years? She's like, how do you love so many people? I'm like, I don't know. I feel like there's, I, I draw from my mom, like from heaven. I don't know. this pure, It's like this pure river of love and light and happiness. And it continues to flow. It it never ends. Mm-hmm. So I have the, the ability to just love and, and accept people who, for just who they are no conditions just love them because that's how that's how my mom loved me and that's how she loved others and the impact has been that like you said life is short i never take life for granted never have when i became when i became older than when she was when she died it was a, it kind of freaked me out a little bit like man i've lived now longer on this earth that my mom did It was the weirdest thing mm. um yeah no it's kind of weird and uh And my my biggest takeaway, even from the pandemic and and all that is, if people have asked, what's your biggest takeaway from the last two or three years across the globe? I'm like, it's this. Do not procrastinate your happiness. (laughs) In other words, don't wait for when. We all live in the when, when, uh, you know, time frame. When I have the right job, when I graduate, when I go to college when I get married, when I have kids, when the kids grow up, when they get married, when I became a grandpa, when I retire. Like, you know what? Forget all the wins. There are no yeah. guarantees any one of us will be alive next month. So live your best life now. Practice your self-care. Have that positive attitude. Be grateful. Forgive when it's time to forgive self and others. Be kind to one another and live your best life now and manifest this amazing life that we can live in spite of all the problems that are on this planet. There are plenty. climate, yeah. Finances, you know, inflation, wars, you know, all kinds of stuff. But in spite of all those things, we can still live a great and a happy life. So don't procrastinate your happiness. One more I, day. I like that, uh, that, that wisdom. So because your your, your mom
0: passed away young, uh, you're, you're more aware, like don't procrastinate the, the, the happiness. And you're talking about this when this happens, then... Um, I was at Mind Valley University. Uh, do you know Mind Valley? Where's that? And I'm not sure. Mind Valley is it's an online platform for personal development. You can okay. it out. And there was um, uh, a speaker, he's a lecturer at Columbia, and he is active in the intersection of, of business and, and, and happiness. And he also mentioned this if then model. Um, but what do you feel is the societal problem? Like, what's the underlying problem that people
1: have? This, this when then thinking. Well, they're not living in the present. That's the other thing. The, the if the if when and if then, and it, that's that's all future based. Like, like mm-hmm. somehow you you keep postponing your hand. You're pushing it in the future. When this happens in the future, then I will be happy. And that's a false premise altogether. My happiness is right now in the present, right here, talking to you. I'm just happy talking to you right now. <laughs> no, I'm ser- no, I'm serious. Though. I was excited. I got up this morning like I got. I have two hours in yeah. Jasper. It's going to be so much fun. Like, uh, and, and it has been a lot of fun. So, me too. I'm enjoying it a lot. It's such an interesting
0: topic. So, so likewise.
1: Yeah. So I don't want to live. I mean, you make plans for the future and so on, but you still live your best life now, and you know, becoming aware to be practicing mindfulness and meditation and grounding yourself and thinking clearly and consciously what kind of life am i living And what kind of life do i want to live you know you made a comment today i'm living a life where i actually drink six cups of coffee i don't want to do that anymore no i want to go to two or three cups of coffee a day i believe you've already set in motion the fact that in the very near future you're gonna your caffeine intake is going to go down to levels that you're comfortable with yeah and yeah. it's going to happen. And I think you—you know—for your audience, you saw it right here in front of your very eyes. You—you're you, hearing Jasper and I talk about that. I believe if you and I have a follow-up meeting in, in a month from now, you are not going to be drinking six cups of coffee anymore. You'll be—you're be, because you made a decision. You decided. I, I agree. So
0: you made me more aware, and I also became aware that it was maybe a replacement of some other other habit. And um, so it's important to live in the present. And since you are the happiness uh, doctor at a daily basis
1: i cried to you anyway I'm, I'm not perfect you know of course but for the most part i, I like ask my wife or kids i well, like yeah dad you know for the most part that's how i've been throughout my whole life yeah obviously i've had my ups and downs obviously i've had tragic things happen in my life and setbacks and so on and i've um, shed my my tears and you know and all that stuff but but i bounce back fairly quickly yeah yeah, so what I want to understand, because you're you're into this happiness space, so
0: if you look at your average day, can you share a bit, one or two things
1: that you do on a daily basis? That Yeah, that absolutely. The for, yeah, the first and foremost, and, and by the way, that happened in the middle of the pandemic early on, as my own stress levels increased. Before the pandemic, I used to walk like three days a week for an hour each time, because i got gray hair and I needed to move around and something that I had to do and all that stuff. Well, guess what? When the pandemic hit and the shutdowns first happened and all this stress, like I could feel it. like in my own home, extended family, were split up all over the world. Like, is everybody okay? Like clients and so on. I realized that that's not enough. And since April of 2020, so it's been over two years now, I now walk every single day, seven days a week, sometimes for more than an hour. And now I do it because I want to, not because I have to. It's a whole different energy behind it. And there are no exceptions. If it's hot, if it's cold, if it's raining, if it's snowing, whatever. And and I don't always take my phone with me, by the way, because a lot of times I used to take my phone. 50% of the time, I don't take my phone with me because sometimes I'm talking to clients or friends or like all over the globe, whatever. Sometimes I leave my phone in my office, and I go for a walk, and I call it probably half, half the time every week. I, I don't use the phone, and I call it my gratitude walks. Mm-hmm. And these are when I walk around, I'm like, look at these beautiful trees and the little squirrels and the rabbits or whatever. Like, look at the look at the beautiful nature, the blue skies. And I'm just like talking even for an hour, like expressing my gratitude for life and, and grateful for other people in my life and so on, which does two things. I get my physical exercise. I get the vitamin B because the sunshine is shining upon me. And I'm also releasing endorphins and you know, dopamine in my, in my brain because I'm in a gratitude state for like an hour. So if it, there are multiple benefits and, and that's part of my self care, by the way, and I'm not, that's not a negotiable. Nothing gets in front of me doing that for my, that's one hour a day. So that's the easy part. Um The other thing that I've done and uh it's also, it also falls under physical health. I've always been of the mindset, eat whatever the heck you want in life. Don't mm-hmm. worry. i stre- really stressed over what they eat, how much they eat and all that. I, I, my idea, like, Eat what you enjoy, again, but in moderation, right? Well, I've discovered, and I've never really listened to my body in the past. Well, the last two or three years, I'm actually starting to listen to my body, become aware of it. So now, guess what? I only eat when I'm hungry. I know Mm. that's a radical statement to make, but people are like, oh, dinner time, time to eat, time to eat, let's eat, let's eat. Well, what if I'm not actually hungry? Why am I eating if I'm not hungry? So I'm actually listening to myself. And believe it or not, I weigh less now than I did 32 years ago when I first met my wife. Like I never thought I would be, and I never never really struggled with weight, but like I'm really down at numbers that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And people say, "Well, how are you doing that?" I'm like, "I walk, so there's movement, right?" But that's not enough. But I also eat very mindfully. I eat as a result of that because I only eat when I'm hungry. I eat, I do eat whatever I like. I love sweets. I'm not giving away sweets. I love sweets, so I'm going to keep eating sweets. But again. Only when my body actually asks for them. It make any, I know that's a kind of a funny thing, yeah. but
0: it makes a lot of sense. So, so you, you only eat when you're hungry and you do the gratitude
1: walks? Mm. Yeah, because I'm listening to my body. What is my body asking me for? Like my body saying, hey, I'm not hungry. Why are you trying to feed me? So or, please do feed me.
0: So treating your body well is important to happiness, right? Especially nowadays. Definitely like your body is
1: like your temple. Like, you you got to take care of your temple, right? This is your temple. You only get one body in this lifetime. You better treat it well, because if you don't, you're going to have a difficult life. Remember when we talked about manifestation and living your best life, and we talked about the three things. Either you have the money, but not the time. You have the time, not the money. Or let's say you have the money and the time, but you don't have your health. Well, I want, you know, we're trying to have all three of them, right? Time, money, yeah. and health. Because if you don't have your health, I don't care what you have. You know, I think, I think that...
0: Uh, um, that 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 it is absolutely true. And and in terms of money, I people focus on what they earn, but I also focus on my costs. You know, I try to keep it a bit low. And sometimes I feel people underestimate the power of the reducing costs, and they're more, more focused on making the money. Uh, but yeah, that that's one of my personal uh, recipes.
1: <laughs> well, listen to this. I had a I had a guy. This was a way way young. This I was first like, I think I was a newlywed who said the following. And he was using dollars, but I'm gonna use euros in your case. He said this about financing. He said, if you spend if you make $50 more than you spend, that equals happiness. Hmm. If you spend fifty dollars more than you make, that equals misery. Now, what's interesting about that statement is that he didn't put an amount like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or a million, whatever. He just said, if you're making more than you're spending, that equals happiness. And if you're spending more than you're making, regardless of how much you're making, that equals misery. Yeah, and that was such a great, very simple, right? But yeah. I remember getting that message. I was in my 20s. I got that message. I'm like, man, that makes a lot of sense.
0: It makes a lot of sense. So, so the spending is important. If people spend too much, it, it gets, uh, gets... Yeah, you uh, have nothing
1: to do with how much money you make. If you're spending more than you're making, then that equals misery. Yeah.
0: Because exactly.
1: You're in debt, you know? And I've been in debt before. I mean, obviously, you know... I used to say this, and I, and I took this to my kids, too, you know, about credit cards specifically. And I'm like, listen, with credit cards, either you're the master or you're the slave. And they're like, well, they were young. I'm like, what? I'm like, yes. If you're paying interest, and I used to, when I was in my 20s, you know, graduate school, we didn't have a lot of money. So I had to make my own life, school loans and all that stuff. If you're paying interest, you're a slave. I was a slave. Mm-hmm. And the bank or whoever owned that, you know, was my master in essence. But when you pay the credit card in full at the end of every month and you pay no interest, now you're the master, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying don't charge things on your credit card. What I'm saying is pay it in full. And I'm here to tell you for 32 years, I have never paid interest on in my credit card. Oh, I see. Because that guy taught me a lesson way back then, like, yeah. you want to be the master or the slave? And you probably mentioned this because in,
0: in the United States, many people may are the slave of their credit cards, I assume.
1: Yeah. There's yes. Yeah. The, the solution is not to buy more credit card. The solution is to some fiscal responsibility where you, you regain control in some ways, you, yeah. you know, when I was younger and I was in debt and I had credit card debt. So I w- it was out of control. Like, I, you, know, I you see. know, yeah. And the minute I remember I got a second job right after I got my PhD, second job. And I used all that income from that second job to pay off my credit cards completely. It took me a year. I never saw, I never spent a dime of that. All that money that came in, I paid off my credit card and that was the end of it. And yeah. after that, I will never be in this position again because I didn't like it. I see. So, so and, and what was his point? He goes, if for some reason, and I remember him doing this, like he physically did this. He goes, if at the end of the month, you cannot pay the balance in full, you take your credit card, he put it out of his wallet and you put it in the drawer right here. And you don't use it until you pay off the balance in full.
0: Yeah, uh, that's,
1: and it was, it was so simple back then. I mean, in my young mind, just newly married and starting a life with my wife and so on. But I followed his advice and he was totally right. And it's made a big difference. Yeah. Because money, is, is it, it, you know, it does contribute to some degree. Money can make you happy. But if you're struggling and you're, you're, you're drowning in debt, it's kind of
0: hard to be happy when you're drowning in debt. I had it the first years of my entrepreneurial life. I underestimated certain costs. And I was not opening my, my tax uh, envelopes for, for a little bit. And uh, at some point, I was so stressed and had to borrow some money. But then I decided again about the decision that it was the last time that I would borrow money in my life. And then I was really motivated to focus on it. Um, but it was a good experience for me to have this stress. Because in my childhood and during my first job, I never had financial stress. But it, yeah, it's it's in, it's a good experience to have. So gratitude walks, eating when you're hungry, and 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 not being a slave of your credit cards are important.
1: Uh, I mean, I think those are on a daily basis. On on a more much more bigger, uh, I would say, um, I think self forgiveness is huge. Just mm-hmm. forgiveness in general, you know. Um, and my experience as a psychologist and working with people is that in, a, in working with addicts, even specifically, like I, I had so many, you know, whether alcoholics or addicts or whatever, when they would you know, work together and they would sober up and they would have like a, you know, a year worth of sobriety and so on. And sometimes I would have like this last interview with them and be something like this. So do you feel like, you know, your significant other, your spouse has forgiven you? Yes. Do you feel like your kids have, yes, your boss, whatever, you know, yes, yes, yes. Whoever you have offended, basically. Have you forgiven yourself? Guess what the answer was to that? No. Yes. The answer was no, or I'm working on it. The best answer I ever got from somebody who is, uh, was was I'm um, working on it, so I feel like lack of self forgiveness. There's no more compassionate to act towards oneself than to forgive oneself. Mm-hmm. There's no greater gift that you can do to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I'm Greek, so I don't have a lot of guilt actually, and I, and I feel like so I don't. I'm self forgiveness for me comes kind of very easy. Like I don't even I don't think there's anything that I haven't forgiven myself about, honestly. It comes easy, but more for people, it does not come easy.
0: But what so. I understand from you, it comes back again to deciding. So instead of, I'm working on it, at some, at some day you need to wake up. Now I decide to forgive instead of like,
1: I'm working on it. Yeah, and I, and I think most people get up every morning before they brush their teeth and they put on their backpack, you know, and this backpack is full of rocks and stones and big boulders, you know, and, and little pebbles, whatever. And all those are symbolic. Of all the things that they haven't let go of, all the things they haven't forgiven themselves or others, right? So they put that extra weight, and that's how they go through life. They're burdened by it. Mm-hmm. And when I work one-on-one with people, I'm like, okay, let's open up the backpack, and let's start taking everything out one by one, and let's start identifying. Okay, this is a little thing. Oh, yeah, I spilled milk all over my cousin yesterday, and I feel so bad about it. I'm embarrassed. Okay, well, that's a little pebble. You know, I was abusive towards my spouse. Okay, that's a big boulder, right? I mean, that's big stuff or whatever. And we identify everything that's on the backpack. And we actually give it a number. Like I have them write down, you know, what, what are the things you haven't forgiven yourself? Sometimes it's pages and pages of stuff. For other people, it's five or six stuff. It depends. And I said, assign a number. 10 would be like, you killed somebody. Like, like a worst thing you can do, right? Like you abused, there's not like, you know, bad stuff. One is like, well, I just tripped over and fell on my face and I'm embarrassed. So we give a number and we put them in order, the entire list, all the things you have. And then we start working on it one by one. And what's funny is most people start off with a little stuff. I'm like, let's gain some practice in self-forgiveness. Let's start with the ones and the twos and the threes and the fours, like gain momentum, clear it out, forgive it, clear it, move it out, and then move on to the next one. What I've discovered is type A personalities, like the leaders of companies, organizations, like the C-suite, a lot of people who are very successful so on, don't do it that way. Mm-hmm. I had one CEO that I had him go through this exercise and he looked at goes, you know what, I'm going to start with my 10. And I'm like, what? That was the first time I ever heard of that. He goes, I'm like, why? He goes, because if I can forgive myself with the 10, everything else is easy after that. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point, right? It is, yeah. So I, I to me, it doesn't matter if you start with the ones and the twos or from the 10s and the 9s. I don't really care which way, as long as you start. Like, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Whatever works best for you. For me, it just made more sense to start with the little stuff and clear them because you just gain some momentum and practice and you can move on to the most difficult stuff. But for some people,
0: it's the other way around. So self-forgiveness can reduce your emotional baggage, baggage that you have, yes. that yes. you carry in life. Yes. But I, I really like the difference between working on it versus deciding, right? So it's like the I want A, B, C instead of like I, I have done. Um, and that's a
1: procrastination again, right? Yeah, I mean, and so we actually do. It. I mean, that's why I shared this exercise with with uh, with people. Like, this is how you do. Because most people, I think, want to self forgive. They just don't know how to do it. Honestly, yeah. you need to have somebody who knows how to help you with this process. You know, I'm kind of like a guide in essence. I mean, I don't, I can't do the self forgiveness for anybody else but myself, but guide them through it. So this is kind of the process: write things down, identify them, you know, and then let's let's get started and let's yeah. go through it. I think
0: that, uh, that's a beautiful exercise. I'll reflect on the things that I still need to to forgive for myself. You want to
1: have a clean slate. A clean slate. So when something happens, listen, I'm not a perfect human being. Neither are you. We're going to make mistakes again. But let's go back to Nelson Mandela, right? Is it a mistake or can I learn something from it? If you know, yeah. I learn something from it, then I don't see it like, oh, I made this huge mistake or whatever and I have to forgive myself. If I learn something from it, it's much easier to let go of it. I, I, see. I, I see. Yeah. That's um,
0: that's a good one. I, I will reflect on what I still have to to forgive, and um, and then yeah, clear, clear. So whenever
1: whatever comes up, it's just one minor thing. We clear it; it's easy. You don't have to. No backpacks. I don't wear a backpack. No, you wear a backpack. Let well, you know. I have a physical a physical backpack because I. live in- <laughs> You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, another thing I was curious because I'm a. One of the things I'm procrastinating is is maybe having children. I I don't have them. I don't even have a partner at the moment. But um, uh, to what extent have children made you happy or or not happy or neutral? What's what's the role of
1: children in happiness? Oh, boy, that's a a tough one. It's the toughest job in the world, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of benefits and joys and so on, but it's really hard. If you have an ego, don't become a parent. Because parenting will humble you so fast. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more humbling than uh, than being a parent. I tell you, I mean, it, the fact that every time we thought we we got it, we figured this thing out, kids' personalities would change, and it would throw you off again. So it's a constant challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, it it has obviously so many blessings, and obviously, but it's not easy. Parenting is not for the faint of heart. I can tell you that. Um, but, but I've learned more from my kids, actually, than I have probably from anybody else. Hmm. Uh, you know, patience. Uh, yeah, just like, and we have great kids, but, you know, we you know we raise them in love. We raise them in a good home. We try to make them world citizens and so on. But, you know, they have their own personalities and their own choices, and they sometimes do things that you don't approve of, and it gets messy and it gets sticky. And uh, But in the end, I'm hoping that love wins you know and that's the, the main thing that they know that they're loved unconditionally and and uh they're great kids and we here now to support them in their choices you know the older one is getting married uh so can't wait for grandkids and no it's good it's not easy though. it's not easy it's hard so it's a tough job and it's a humbling uh experience. oh completely humbling uh, you know if you yeah. feel confident about that try being there then it's just, it's believe me like and my wife and i like we're really smart like you know how did this happen to us? <laughs> we're just getting all mad and emotionally hijacked, or whatever. Like we're acting like children ourselves, you know. And you it's, gotta you gotta have a sense of humor. That's the only thing I can tell you. If you, you don't know, have a sense of humor as a parent, you're gonna be, you're gonna be a long
0: twenty years. When I, I, tell can, you that. I can I can't imagine that you need to be able to laugh about certain certain things. And yeah. um, another thing I wanted to ask, um, yeah. Like biologically, you never know if, if getting children is even possible. But apart from that, is is children is that something that you decide? And talking again about deciding, or is it something that kind of emerges, or
1: how do you see that? I mean, we I mean we made a conscious decision to uh, wait after we got married for two or three years. Um, and we you know we have we have kids both biological and adopted kids. So we have kids on both sides actually, which is has its own beauty too and, and uniqueness and so on. Um so it's, it certainly has enriched our lives by far. Um, it taught us so many things. I mean, there's so many lessons to, to learn as a parent. Um, and and in the end, it teaches you truly, it, it puts to the test, the whole idea of unconditional love. Mm. Like, like truly, are you going to love them even when they're making choices that you don't agree with? Can you still love them? Mm. You know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of dynamics that uh, take place. And, uh, you know, it's great it once you, of course, our kids now are adults. So we have a whole different relationship with, and they're grateful for. Cause teenage years are not easy. And I love the teenagers. I, when I was a psychologist, I had like, I probably have raised like 500 teenagers over my lifetime. I <laughs> love that age, but they were not my kids. It was much easier to deal with them because they're like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so having your own kids like, oh
0: yeah, that's not easy. I, um, and, and you're, you're a psychologist and then you're also a father does it help you to be a good father, or is it also more stressful
1: because you know all the theories? No, I think it made it made it easier because I was able to understand uh, human behavior. Mm. Uh, for me, it gave me a different. I had certain insights that maybe uh, because I understood the developmental stages of kids, how they were going through. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to like be a perfect dad just because I'm a I was a psychologist, but I I knew the theories. I knew what they were going through a little bit, and that did help. Because I knew that, you know what? I used to tell my wife, like, don't worry about it. This is just a phase. They're going to grow out of it. It's just a phase. Like, so, it, so it helped me have the big picture perspective. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes you're, like, just focusing. You're like, why can't they do it, you know? And it's like, pull back the camera lens, like, whoa, whoa, way back. And, like, our kids are going to be just fine. Like, And you have to have the belief that they're going to figure things out. We're here to love them and support them. But in the end, it's their lives and their choices. And hopefully they don't do anything too crazy that there's no coming back from, you know? Yeah. It's the tr- trust that you need to have in your children.
0: Right. That's, um, that's beautiful. Yeah. Some of my uh, uh, friends, they have young children, so they, they've confirmed that it can be a tough job. So you're, oh, a
1: it's, a, it's the toughest job. <laughs> but it's very rewarding too. I mean, I don't want to think it's like, I oh, don't have, no, it's very rewarding, but it's also hard and it's, yeah, you just have to have the big picture perspective and that uh, this is, this is not a, it's not a sprint it's a marathon raising kids ultra marathon <laughs> sometimes
0: i see yeah so that's uh yeah one of the longest marathons that you you might might yeah run. this is not
1: a sprint it's not like a, well we had a really good month okay well you have uh, 20 more years so one month doesn't mean anything. it's consistency over time love patience so you know communicating communicating uh, you know I wish I had known about the hot conversations back then because I didn't discover hot conversation until the last few years. Hmm. That would be very helpful if I was able to, if I knew about it, you know, earlier on, but I didn't. So I I'm see. Practicing, yeah, practicing hot conversation now with them and it's great. I can,
0: uh, I can imagine that it changes a lot. So parenting is, uh, is a marathon. Uh, entrepreneurship is also a marathon and you're working on your new project, the TV show you yes. manifest uh, certain things so if people are listening uh, to this conversation and they want to collaborate with you uh, or support you or, or partner on this TV show like what are the requests that you have or the opportunities that you can offer for collaboration
1: yeah I mean I'm very open to collaborating I mean I'm uh, expanding obviously my the happiness doctor and the brand itself to Europe and out to the Middle East of course uh, you know, I'm going to be spending at least half my time in America then half the time over there. So, uh, uh, yeah, best best place to reach me is either my LinkedIn profile, you know, or uh, DrEliaGurgors.com, my website. That's where you can find uh, more about what I do. I love to do keynote speaking. I mean, that's my favorite thing is to travel and to speak uh, in front of organizations. That's my uh, number one thing. I'm sure there's a third book on its way in the next couple of years. I'm already thinking about it. Maybe the happy leader, you know, leadership specifically, we'll see. Um, and the reality TV show, obviously, that's my biggest thing because I think n- nothing that I've done in my life up to this point has the potential impact that it has is to really influence and impact millions of people now. Not because I've spoken in front of tens of thousands of people like, you know, the last two or three years, I'm talking about millions of people to be kind, to be loving and how it can help transform our society and to inspire other people even sitting at home watching it and say yeah i really want to contribute i really want to go volunteer or i can i really want to like that's what i want so that's my main focus right now is the keynote speaking and that the tv show those are the two biggest things i still coach people like Mm -hmm. one-on-one but uh i'm very selective uh, at this stage in my life i do coach a few people but it's very one-on-one and I I see. So you want to reach more people through the show,
0: keynote speaking. Yeah, uh,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I like about this project is to build connections between people that, that things happen. And, um, yeah, for me, it was a wonderful conversation. I wrote a few insights to summarize. So don't procrastinate your happiness. Decide if you want to get rid of an addiction, time, money, health, you probably never have it all. So again, don't procrastinate and, and and do the things you want to do. Do gratitude walks, eat when you're hungry, uh, manage your credit cards well. These are all like beautiful insights. Um, yeah, it was great to have you. I don't know. Do you have a last piece of wisdom that you want to share before we close? I, I just
1: hope that for everybody, you get rid of any toxic people in your lives. I think that's a huge contributor to your happiness and health. And remember, we do that by practicing hot conversations with people that we care about. But more importantly, it's how we show up with them first. So show up as your best self in your relationships with love, kindness, you know, um, respect. And uh, because then you can, of course, demand that they also treat you with love, kindness and respect in return. And uh, live your best life now. Do not wait. Do not wait. You know, I have a program that actually I take my clients through called Best Year Yet, where we where I help them create their best year. How do you create your best year of your life? And uh, that's a big part of my coaching practice, actually. I do that. I do it myself for myself every year. I've done it for like the last 15 years. My wife does it. My kids do it. All my clients do it. And it's a beautiful exercise. How do you create your best year yet? So, um, yeah, that's one of my, that's one of the favorite things I like to do when I coach people is helping them design consciously and mindfully their best year yet. And then implement it soon yes I think
0: that's uh important wisdom uh, to close with So, well, thank you very much uh for your wisdom thank you people for listening and um i hope to see you soon yeah thank you thanks for
1: having me it was a real pleasure great conversation likewise